So Romans chapter 15 verse 4 tells us that the things that have been written before were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know that there's some scriptures take a little bit more patience than others. And uh, so, you know, we, we have to invest ourselves. You know, um, there is, you know, I am confident in, personally that in every single page of the Bible, there, there are amazing, untold riches to be understood. There are truths on every single page of the Bible that will curl the toes of any person who is listening. Sincerely. The problem is, is that, and it's not really a problem, it's a challenge. The challenge is, is that to invest yourself so wholeheartedly into the scripture as to come to a situation where the Lord is able to really open your, your understanding, really show you what's going on. You know, that is, that is the challenge. And it, it takes time and it takes energy and it takes a condition of the heart to be able to do that. And sometimes I've got time and not much energy. And sometimes I've got time and energy and not much heart. But the truth is, is that, you know, with the Lord's help, any one of us are able to take apart the scripture and look at it and learn from it and receive what the Lord has intended. God has undertaken a work with mankind. It's complicated. It's a complicated undertaking, covering thousands of years, billions of persons, every culture and people of every possible description. And I might add that it is a little bit different work from one person to the next. But we are able to understand it as our ability to understand what God is doing is an important part of the progress of that work. Now, we will not understand everything. We will not understand everything that God's doing with the children of Israel in the Scripture. We will not understand everything that God is doing in our lives. But we understand a part of the progress. We understand bits and pieces of it. We understand everything that we need. And that's important. God has made available to us the things that we need to understand. Again, if we're willing to apply ourselves. The book of Exodus is a historical account of God's interaction with the nation of Israel. Even the beginnings uh, with God as a nation. It is our very first look at God dealing with a nation of men under benevolent conditions. Um, And his attempt to bring the children of men into a conduct that allows and even encourages his attachment to them in a practical and a supernatural way, both. God wants to affect us in the most practical ways. God wants to affect the way that I tie my shoes in the morning. Now, it may sound really dumb, but I guarantee you it's not. Because he wants to be so involved in my every waking moment. Okay, But he also wants to be involved in my life in ways that are manifested, can only be described as utterly and completely supernatural 
and basically beyond human understanding in a common sense. He wants to do that. He wants to do it at the same time, in the same places. He wants to see the lives conduct of people operate in a direction that is the most beneficial to themselves. This is the thing, and I think we all can bear testimony, that people have the hardest time really taking a hold of is the fact that God wants to, you know, indoctrinate me in these activities and this ideas and all these things. And God's got a list of 100,000 things he wants me to learn and do and become familiar with. And that each and every one of those is, is a huge issue for my benefit. It really is all about my benefit. And that is the thing that's difficult for people to, because people have just gotten in this habit of seeing God as, you know, the cosmic killjoy. You know, why does God do this? Because he doesn't want me to have a good, because God hates me, because God wants to judge me. And, you know, the enemy is, is really gifted at pushing that idea. Truth is, God's got all the bases covered. In the beginning of Exodus, we have the story of Moses. He is the lightning rod. Uh, God likes to use individuals, as we see throughout the scripture. He picks out some weird guy and says, you, you know, you're going to be the guy. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And the guy looks at him and says, what? Are you, are you sure you don't have the wrong guy? I mean, seriously, how many times do we go through the scripture and find that? And Moses was the, you know, the champion of, I think you have the wrong guy. I think you've got the wrong guy here. Moses is the lightning rod. Uh, the book expands in the life of Moses till about chapter 5. The narrative begins to include the whole nation. And God begins his work in preparing the people. Through the plagues, God is preparing the people right up to the Passover and then to Mount Sinai, which is, in a very real way, the inauguration of God's people, immediately followed by the institution of these guidelines, the protocol for conduct for the nation with God. So we have the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. God says, this is the deal. And he sets it before the people, which, by the way, Jesus leans on very heavily in the Gospels as evidence. You know, it's relative importance. In Matthew seven twelve, Jesus says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice, Jesus takes a lot of liberty with the law because he can. <laughs> because it's his. <laughs> he can do that. Um, Matthew twelve twenty eight. one of the scribes came having heard them reasoning together perceiving that Jesus had answered them well asked him which is the first commandment of all Jesus said the first of all the commandments is hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength this is the first commandment the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. And so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with the soul, with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Following the law of God gives Moses 
God, God gives him, takes him up on the mountain, gives him the blueprint on the mountain. The blueprint mentioned at the very end of chapter 25, Exodus 25, verse 40. See to it that you make them, the furnishings basically talked about in chapter 25, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And all the things that Moses was instructed to produce lead the nation into their service to the Lord. It tells us in the book of Hebrews that these things are shadows of the things to come. Hebrews 8, speaking of Jesus, says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed. So they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Now, of course, the book of Hebrews was written prior to 70 AD, meaning that there were still Levites in the temple in Jerusalem offering sacrifices, burning incense, and doing all the daily oblations that were important parts of the law of Moses. Things that, if it had been written after 70 AD, the writer wouldn't have been able to say those things. But these were going on at the time. And what were those things? They were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Again, according to the scripture in the book of Hebrews. Again, last week in chapter 25, we saw the instruction to the people for the collection of materials to be used in assembling the buildings and articles for worship. And then following that, the instruction for the people for the production of the furniture, the instruments to be used in the services of worship. This week... Chapter 26, we're looking at the tent, the tabernacle. Chapter 26, the tabernacle. Tabernacle is another word for tent. It's sort of an archaic English word for tent, okay? But that's what it is. This is a big tent. And later on, we'll get into the details of God's purpose. We start off with the individual pieces and then some of the assembly instructions. Verses 1 through 5, we talk about the curtains of the tent. Moreover... You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall notice that. Cherubim. I am at the end of the word there. You shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Five, the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage on one set. And likewise, you shall do so on the other, the outer edge of the other curtain on the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain. Fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. So, curtains. It's curtains. Each one of these ten curtains, measuring 42 feet by 6 feet, approximately. Now, the the measurements we have in Exodus are in cubits. Cubit is the distance between your elbow and the tip of your finger. So if we measure my cubit against somebody else's, there's going to be a little bit of a variance. 
But of course, if you're doing a big project like that, you come up with a common qubit and you run everything by that. So these guys were not dumb. They'd have everybody down there measuring by their own arm. But um, a qubit, now what it comes out to, about 42 feet by 6 feet. Uh, just short of a ratio of 8 to 1 in the side. Now this is a big curtain, 42 foot long. I mean, we might just barely get it in between these two walls here. You know, it's... It's not a small thing. Doesn't really sound like every curtain is to have the 50 blue yarn loops for the purpose of connecting them together, but it's possible. It's possible that they all do. Uh, there are a number on, if you're, you're an internet person, you like, you're on the internet from time to time looking, there are a lot of really good virtual uh, tabernacle illustrations on YouTube if you want to see practically how it can all come together. And if you start poking around looking at those things, you're also going to find that different people have different ideas. And they don't all come together in the same way from one. People have theories about how these things work. And people, maybe you've noticed, they have a lot of interesting ideas. Just between me and you, Moses was the only one that saw the pattern on the mountain. He was the guy. He was up there. And fortunately for the children of Israel, he was there to help them. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. What, what are you doing? That doesn't go that way. Well, you said, no, I don't care what I said. This is how it goes. Well, how do you know? <laughs> he saw the pattern on the mountain. You know, when you're studying the Bible, it's always a very helpful thing to remind yourself of what you don't know. Because there are a lot of things you don't know when you're studying the Bible. And generally speaking, as we mentioned before, God's going to show you the things that you need. But if there are things that you don't know, you, you definitely don't want to make a, a practice of claiming certainty concerning things that the scripture is not certain about. It's very important. In fact, it is a sign of wisdom to allow the Lord liberty in the areas that he's provided. Moses was the only one that saw it. Tells us here that these are made of linen. Now, linen in its natural state is, is light, very light colored, light, super light beige perhaps, okay, unless it's, it's dyed. And it, there's no reason to think that the linen was necessarily dyed in this case. Although there are other materials involved in the weaving of these curtains, okay? There's a scarlet, and there's also blue, and in some places in the tabernacle, there's golden thread involved in some of the garments, mostly. Um, Egypt would have arguably been the center for linen production at this time. So understandably, the Israelites are loaded with whatever came out of Egypt. They have no shortage of linen thread. But keep in mind that the weaving of these panels... These, these uh, curtains would have been done in the wilderness. So not only did they have the raw materials, they had to have the machinery to do it out there in the wilderness, in the middle of, you know, and I know what you probably have a picture in your head of what it looked like, you know, somebody sitting on top of a sand dune with a, with a you know, trying to, with this thing going back and forth, trying to weave a, a particular curtain. Um, if God is painting a picture for us here, and he is, what does he want us to understand? In the scripture, folks, 
Fine linen is consistently portrayed as a picture of the righteous acts of the saints, indicating purity and righteousness, especially of the church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 19.8 And to her it was granted, speaking of the church, granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. Not too often do you get so clear an understanding of symbology being portrayed. It is the righteous acts of the saint. Revelation 19.8 And then, actually even in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord speaks a brief parable of the history of Israel. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. And I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. The fact that God clothes you speaks of the fact that this is not something that we deserve. It's God's grace. He puts it on you. You know, it's not something that you have earned and deserved. But God is gracious in that way. The tabernacle, folks, is to be the contact point of God for the people of God to draw near to Him, to seek the Lord in spirit and in truth. Uh, Psalm 43, verse 3 says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Psalm 46, 4 says, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Possible both of those psalms were written before the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So they had the tabernacle right there up on top of Mount Moriah. And people came there to worship. hundred years later, Isaiah speaks of the city of Jerusalem as a tabernacle, a place to worship. Isaiah 33.20 Look upon Zion, the city of your appointed feasts, Your eyes will see Jerusalem a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Now it's interesting because Isaiah speaks so much prophetically of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem as well. But obviously he has something supernatural in mind here. The tabernacle, folks, is the contact point with God for the nation. The tent, it's called the tent of meeting throughout the book of Exodus. That is, where they meet the Lord. The tabernacle tent shows up in Scripture as a picture of the human body. Um, And especially in the New Testament, the dwelling place of God is identified as the body of Christ. We see reference to the physical body as a tent a couple of different places in 2 Corinthians 5. We know that if our house, this tent... Is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this we earnestly groan, desiring to be clothed with our habitation from heaven. Second uh, Corinthians five, four. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, because we want not to be unclothed, but further clothed with mortality, may be swallowed up by life. Uh, Peter, a couple of times in Second Peter one thirteen. Yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. 2 Peter 1.14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent 
as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. So the idea here is that a tent is an illustration of a body, a human body, like the body of Christ. Uh, as he starts off, uh, chapter 26, the very first part, moreover, you know, let's pick it up again, let's go again, refocus. We're continuing the process. You know, folks, God is always in the process of helping to refocus our attention on the work at hand. All of us together, and each one of us individually. Uh, it's interesting, you know, we were praying for the people on the Philippines trip, and we talked a little bit with them about how how challenging it is to get a group of people on the same page. You know, and, and God's big about one accord. He wants people to be in agreement with one another. And that doesn't mean you know, this crazy idea of in lockstep, like, you know, you be like us or go somewhere else or, you know. God intends that if you be the you that he created you to be, you will fit in perfectly with the rest of his people in every possible way. It will just happen. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you've seen it happen. You've seen God just put you in a situation and you just do what comes naturally to you and all of a sudden, bam, you're right exactly where you need to be. And it is a, it's an affirming thing. It's an encouraging thing. You feel like, wow, God's here and working and it's, it's pretty awesome. Individual person, much easier to get in one accord. In fact, you know, there, but there are, trust me, there are people out there who are all by themselves and they're not really in agreement with themselves about what's going on. That's, that's difficult. He, he, t- he says here for them to begin the work to make. Um, and the, the Hebrew word for make is asa. And there's probably an accent in there too. It, it, and actually it, it shows up 1,300 times in the Old Testament. Uh, make, uh, commit, execute, keep, prepare, work, perform, uh, maintain, all of those things included in that term. And so the building of this temporary structure, and a tent is a temporary structure, just like your body is a temporary structure. If you're, if you're not 30 years old yet, you might not realize that. But you will sooner or later. You're going to figure it out. This is not going to last forever. And uh, that's an important re- realization. Uh, it is a temp- tent is a temporary structure. God is instructing us in an understanding of his connection to us and in the nature how that connection works. Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Christ is the body God prepared to house this work to free us from the burden of sin. The tabernacle is his parable of that truth. The tabernacle is his parable of that truth. Uh, of the priestly order, he says in Hebrews 8, 5, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. Notice that included on these curtains are images of cherubim. And I pointed out to you as we were reading it that it's not a cherub, it's cherubim. And any word in Hebrew that ends in I am is plural. And yet you've all heard this before. So this is on every curtain. We have two cherubs. Sitting there, or standing, I'm sure they're not sitting, standing there in some semblance of appearance. But they're visible on the curtains, okay? And this is a very important thing. Why is it so important? Because any time in the scripture 
that you see two cherubs, you're seeing something else also. What is it? You're seeing the presence of God. The only place in the Bible that two cherubs show up is on either side of the presence of God. And you, then you can't do and make an image of the presence of God. But if you put two cherubs on a curtain, you know it's indicating, ah, presence of God, right there, Shekinah glory. That's the place. That's where it's happening. These, these curtains, you guys, and I'm again, for things that are being manufactured in the wilderness, they are very extravagant. The materials, even the process speaks volumes about the condition in which the children of Israel left Egypt. And we know, you know, uh, last, last year, Exodus 11.2, Moses told them, Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman her neighbor articles of silver and gold. This is just following the Passover, uh, Exodus 12.35. Now the children of Israel had done according to the words of Moses, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver and gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians that they granted them what they requested, and they, thus they, they plundered the Egyptians. They, you know, I mean, it wasn't enough that the whole nation was destroyed. There wasn't a green blade of grass anywhere left in the country. That the animals were all dead. But, you know, after the Passover, they're all getting ready to go out. Of the, and they said, oh, we're supposed to go. And they knock, knock. Somebody's at the door. Who is it? Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm George, and this is my wife Zelda. And uh, we're, we're Jews. We're leaving. We're leaving now. We're, leaving. we're going to leave you all around. We're wondering, do you have anything that you'd like to give us? Anything like, uh, what's that over there? Oh, that's really nice. I, I like that. And, you know, these people who had been involved in the destruction of your nation, what are you going to tell them? <laughs> no, go away. You know, I don't think so. I don't think so. He's, yeah, come, whatever you want. <laughs> Help yourself. There's some more over here. I, I really, I can't imagine what that scene was like. You know, the, the Egyptians standing there. <laughs> okay. I don't know. But however it worked, they wound up with the riches and the wealth of Egypt. And this was, again, probably one of the motivating factors in Pharaoh and his army deciding to take out after them right away. Um, so now, if we move along, verse 6 uh, brings us to these things, these clasps of gold, um, attaching the curtains together. <coughs> Excuse me. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Now we should assume that these uh, 50 clasps of gold per curtain, 10 curtains have to be connected one to another in some way. However, depending upon exactly how they're organized, you would really only need 50 clasps for every two curtains because you're connecting those woolen loops together Okay, um, so it, it's not clear that you would need 50 for each and every curtain. It's interesting to me, and again, I'd love to tell you exactly how it all came together, but I wasn't on the mountain with Moses, and I'm not sure, but if you want to look at YouTube, you can get everybody else's idea on exactly how it's organized. Um, it's interesting that the clasps are gold, as gold throughout the scripture is symbolic of deity, uh, symbolic of God's presence, as are 
the cherubs, as we mentioned earlier. Now, gold throughout the scripture points to deity, showing up some 91 times in the book of Exodus, mostly with reference to the construction of the tabernacle. Job chapter 22, verse 25 says, Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Revelation 21.18 talks about the construction of the New Jerusalem. Its wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Again, in the New Jerusalem identifying God's presence as intrinsic, built in to everything in the city of the New Jerusalem. With reference to these clasps, uh, a thought, Colossians chapter 1.16 tells us of the Lord that for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now that phrase at the end of Colossians 1.17, in him all things consist. In the NIV, New English Bible, American Standard, New American Standard Bible, says, in him all things are held together. He holds everything together. And, you know, if you're a fan of theoretical cosmology or string theory or things like that, you know, there are a lot of interesting little details in nuclear physics that really had not a work. But yet they do. And we're not really sure why, but I really like to lean on this verse. Colossians 1.17. Jesus holds them together. That's how it works. And so it's interesting that these clasps, gold reflecting the deity of the Lord, are holding the whole tabernacle together all the way around. All things are held together. These curtains are symbolic of the heavens, again, held together by their creator. Verses 7 through 10, we have, uh, goat hair over the curtains. Verse 7 says, You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall have the same measurements and you shall couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves and you shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on each edge of the curtain that is the outermost of one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. So now these curtains are 11 feet or rather I'm sorry 11 cubits instead of 10 cubits okay. They're approximately 30 by 4 instead of 28 by 4. The difference being so one could be installed above the other. It also is reasonable in this situation that the goat's hair sections of curtain would hang all the way down to the ground, all the way around, whereas the linen ones would not hang all the way to the ground, which is interesting because they're representing the heavens and they don't quite touch the ground. It's so cool. I, I just really, I like that, you know. God is just so into detail. He takes care of stuff. Um, we have a little bit more specific information concerning the joining of these curtains, the loops necessary for the connection one with the other section, overlapping um, in verses 9 and 10. The appearance of this tent, very interesting. The appearance of this tent would be black, like a normal everyday tent, of a Bedouin in the Middle East today, made of goat's hair. Bedouin tents are generally made out of this material. 
And if you see them, you ever have a chance to go to Israel or if you see travel logs of Israel and you see Bedouin tents, they're usually black on the outside, very unappealing. Uh, the difference being the shape is, is pretty radically different because this, this tent is much, much, much larger and higher, probably with at least as high a ceiling as we have in this room, maybe even higher than that. And uh, the Bedouin tents are very low ceiling. You, you, you get in, you can walk in, but you, you kind of have to sit down, especially closer to the edges. They slope off pretty radically. But they're, the outward appearance uh, from the, the goat goat's hair, uh, you actually would not be able to see the linen at all. And um, goat hair has, uh, the goat is, you know, one of the two primary an- animals used in sacrifice. Again, pointing us to the atonement of sin. The idea here is that you would never see the beauty of the amazing panel of the curtain unless you were on the inside. It's the only way you would ever see the amazing handiwork. Um, you could only appreciate it. And, it. and again, a picture, a parable here that God has created, you know, just like being born again. I know that before I received Christ, I had friends that were believers and they told me all kinds of amazing things that God was going to do in my life if I became a believer. And they told me amazing things about God and about the Bible and all this stuff. But it was just, not, 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 it's just words to me. It had no meaning to me. and no concept. There was no way for me to understand the things that they were saying until I be, God opened my eyes and allowed me to see the, the dramatic and amazing things that he had done. John seven seventeen. Jesus says, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. The way you know, be obedient to the truth and God will show you. When looking on this tent, it would look like a really big Bedouin tent. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Isaiah 53.2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or attractiveness, comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, this is interesting because it is the tabernacle as a type of Jesus himself. And that really is part of God's purpose here. He's creating this building to give people a perspective of Jesus. And that particular verse, Isaiah 53, 2, you look at the thing and it's like, you know, this Jewish guy has been talking to me all day about the amazing, wonderful tabernacle. And what? It's a... Big black tent, you know, nothing happened in there. Second Corinthians 4, 4 tells us the minds of the people of this world, people who are in rebellion against the truth, the minds, the God, their minds, the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Notice the goat's hair tent is held together, not with gold clasps, but with bronze clasps. Very different. Verse 11 says you shall make 50 bronze clasps put together, clasps unto the loops to couple the tent together that it may be one. Bronze is consistently portrayed in the scripture and identified with God's judgment. Leviticus 26, 19, 
I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Deuteronomy 28, your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. Both passages referring to the judgment of Israel. Daniel 4 talks about God's judgment of King Nebuchadnezzar. That he's portrayed in a particular dream that he has as a tree, which is cut down and there's a band of bronze and iron put around it. This is God's judgment against him. And when Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, Daniel flips out a little bit and says, I hope this dream's about your enemies and not you. But, well, he was wrong. And then, if that's not enough, the bronze altar, the brazen altar that's right out in front of the tabernacle itself where sins are atoned for. See this animal burning on this altar. And what is it for? For the forgiveness of your sins, for your sins being judged on that altar as this poor little lamb that was there just a minute ago you cut its throat, the Levite threw it up on the altar, is incinerated for your sins. This is the judgment of God. And this is the way that God intended the understanding. Judging and atoning for the sins of the nation. We're never to forget the judgment of God is a restraining force that holds together the unruly inclinations of depraved mankind just as it holds together the outside of this unattractive tent that we look upon. Verse 12, uh, the remaining curtains, uh, verses 12 and 13, the remnant of the remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. So, that everything is adequately covered. The information is here until the Lord tells us differently. It's really basically 12 and 13 are engineering details. Uh, and verse 14 is a very interesting verse. And there are a couple of different ways that Bible commentators like to look at this. And I'll give you both of them so that you can, you can see. Okay. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. Now, uh, the two ways that people look at this, commentators are kind of torn. And the, if, you're, if you're reading really academic intellectual commentators, their perspective is, is that the ram skin and the badger skin are going to be carrying cases for the tabernacle when it's taken down and put away so they can be transported by the Levites from place to place. And one of the reasons that they say that is because it doesn't give any kinds of dimensions, numbers of panels in any, any way whatsoever. There's no specific direction about what size to make these things, as, whereas the, the goat's hair tent and the linen curtains are all very specific in their layout, connection, how everything's designed. Some of them will say that, well, you know, it would just, if you were to put all those different layers on top of the tent, it would just be too heavy. There's no way it could support it because it is a flat roofed tent. It does not have any poles in the center holding it up except for the poles before the most holy place. There are actually uh, four poles that are uh, pillars that are present before the most holy place. Okay, that's not true. That's not true. This is an amazingly well-constructed tent. 
And it could carry all kinds of amazing weight. Trust me, if they were to put it all on there. Um, The ram skins dyed red. If indeed this is a reference to a further tent to be laid over the top, is just amazing because, well, not only is it going to provide extra insulation for anything going on inside the tent, but it also is indicative of the sacrifice of Christ. Anytime you see red in the tabernacle, it speaks of the blood of Jesus. And the ram, of course, he's like a lamb who was slain. And that's covering the entire tent with red dyed ram skin. Now, the badger skin, there's a little bit more controversy here. Actually, there are no badgers anywhere near Egypt until you get to Syria. From Syria and further northward in the area of Lebanon, there are badgers. But there are no badgers in, in Israel for the most part, in, in Canaan, and also on down towards the wilderness and, and also in, in Egypt. There are no badgers. There, some people make the claim that, well, no, this isn't a real badger. It's like a, a ground squirrel or an, some kind of a, a larger rodent that lived, and they just called it a badger. Well, that's nice, but you weren't there. So how do you know they just called it a badger? Actually, we, we pretty much know for a fact that this word badger is a mistranslation from the Latin. That when they went from Latin into English, in the, the Great Bible and also in, in the King James Version, that it's a word that's similar to the word for a badger, and they translated it that way. But it actually most likely is the word for porpoise, which also makes it a little bit interesting. But there are... In, in the Red Sea and in the whole, that area of the Mediterranean, abundant numbers of fish. It's not like a dolphin. It's not flipper. Okay. But it is like it's an, uh, a fish that's actually a mammal. It's a smaller version of a bay porpoise. And they actually skinned them and used their skin for specific purposes. And, and again, we read earlier in uh, the book of Ezekiel where it talks about uh, the Lord making shoes. And it says badger skin, but again, that's from the King James. It really is this word for the porpoise. And if it were that type of skin, it's very durable. It's very, very thin, extremely light. And it would be an excellent covering for the tent. And so I, I give you both options. We've got a couple of carrying cases here, or there are two extra tents on top of the tabernacle. And there are plenty of commentators on both sides of the issue that like to take, uh, have ideas about how it actually should be worked out. Revelation 5 and verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor. And that lamb that was slain, again, identifies the the red dyed ram's uh, skins that would have been put upon and over the uh, the working of the tabernacle. So in verses 15 through 18, we have the framework of the boards and the support. For the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of the board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. So these are pretty substantial boards that are being from acacia wood. Two tenons shall be in each board, Binding one to another, thus you shall make 
for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. Now, in Scripture, when we talk about wood, wood is, is, indicates humanity. Wood is symbolic of humanity. This particular wood, acacia wood, very hardy from the desert, grown under harsh uh, conditions, and therefore a very sturdy, durable, hardwood, useful for objects and furniture. Again, if you go to Israel, they would like to sell you stuff made of acacia wood because it shows up so prominently in the scripture. The tenons, the word for tenon there is hand. It's the word hand. And it really is speaking of a kind of wood joint that allows for the board to be joined to its base and to other parts of the structure. Wood in the scripture, again, significant or symbolic of humanity. Why? Well, look at, again, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 4, verse 10. These are the visions of my head on my bed. I was looking, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree became strong. Height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. And its leaves were lovely, fruit abundant, and it was food for the beasts of the field. And they all found shade under it. Birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh fled from it, or fed from it. I saw in my visions while I was on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, let the stump and its roots be left in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him, notice we switch from the tree, it, to him. Let him graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let him be given to the heart of a beast. Let seven times pass over. And we recognize this as God's pronouncement against Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. And he spent seven years... Uh, with really long fingernails eating grass out in the field. Uh, human beings are here for only the very briefest period of time. Very brief. I mean, a uh, week ago last Thursday, I was 18. I remember. I, I was there. Trust me. It's, it's, it's gone. Boom. Years go by like months now. I don't know if it's happening for you that way. But in my life, it's going to be February here in a minute. And years go by like months. Uh, months go by like weeks. You know, weeks go by like days. It's wild. I don't mind. You know, it's all according to plan. So that's fine. But it is, it is human beings are here for only the briefest period of time. I was driving into Del Taco the other day looking up at the, the drive through And there's this fascia board on it and recently painted. And part of the wood is really nice and well put together. And part of it is like... It's not going to be there very long. You know, it's got some wood rod. It's got some termites, whatever. And, you know, and people are like that also. Check out Robert Luna. You know, he's not here today, as you know. But seriously, the man is 81 years old. I challenge you to wrestle him. God have mercy on you. You know, it's amazing. 81 years old. There are half a dozen people in this church at 81 who don't look that well at all. You know, but... uh, we're all different, but yet, whatever the case, no matter how, how strong you are, how well put together, how good you take care of yourself, you're only here for a very brief, brief period of time. If you want a little encouragement, if you want to do something with your life, do it now. Do it now. Don't put it off. You want to do something with your life? You know, make, it sure, make sure it's what the Lord wants you to do and do it now. 
Humans are temporary. Anything you build of wood is very temporary. Or except for those good, amazing wooden structures from 200 years ago. Have you seen those? No, I haven't seen them. Where? Two hundred, yeah. They're they're on borrowed time, brother. They better find that guy from that cabin show, <laughs> move him somewhere, and put him on concrete. <laughs> he continues along with the boards here in verse nineteen. Sockets of silver. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenants. Again, silver is symbolic of righteousness throughout the scripture. Righteousness is right standing with God. It is the right standing of Christ that allows his sacrifice to be acceptable for us with the Father. God wants his people to be directed and to be called by righteousness. Isaiah 42 verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Again, speaking of the righteousness of Jesus. He is the light to the Gentiles. Numbers chapter 10 verse 2 says, Make two silver trumpets for yourself, and you shall make them of hammered work, and you shall use them for calling the congregation, calling the congregation in righteousness with silver trumpets, directing the movement of the camps. Proverbs 10 Verse 20 says, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Proverbs 16.31, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Malachi 3.3 says, he will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Why, why is the gold in there? Because of the origin of the precious offering. It comes from the Lord. It's not from us. You know, we are wood. You don't get silver out of wood. Gold and silver. We believe in a thing called the rule of law in this world, in our, in our culture specifically. I was thinking about that a little bit today. And unfortunately, there is a breakdown in this idea of the rule of law. Sometimes we talk about the rule of law like, well, that's it. We could just have the rule of law. You know, if we go into these countries and give them the rule of law, that would be it. There is a breakdown, unfortunately. Um, to be a culture of laws and rules, whenever you have a rule, you have to have a person to interpret and apply the rule. And in our case, those who interpret and apply rules are called lawyers. They are the ones that hold the levers of power in a culture like ours built on the rule of law, which unfortunately brings about excess, distortion, corruption, and eventually can result in great evil. What we really need is the rule of righteousness, where the situation of every man is subject to right standing with God. In such a world, God alone holds the levers of power, and his truth is the determining factor, and it's a thing that we can't get along without, not for too long anyway. Isaiah 58, 8 says, Then your light shall break forth in the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and your glory, for the Lord shall be your rear guard. Amen. Yes. Verses 20 through 23 
We duplicate the sides of the tabernacle. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there should be 20 boards as there were on the other side. And for 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of those boards. For the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards. And you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. In verse 24, they're joined by rings. And they shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus, it shall be for both both of them. They shall be for the two corners. Now, this is, again, this is a very sturdy tent. This is a very sturdy structure, all in all. I would think unique in all the world. Certainly not an Egyptian structure and not a Bedouin, although it might appear something like that, a Bedouin tent because of the outer goat's hair covering. That's, that's where the similarities end. And so in verses 25 and 26, he reiterates uh, the specific design. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each board. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle. And again, these support bars in 27 through 30. Five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle. For the far side westward, the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold. Make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. So there is a lot of gold involved in this structure. And again, the Gold, so so. let me see again here. The, these bars are made of acacia wood. The pillars are made of acacia wood. And wood is indicative of humanity. Very, very temporary. And gold, of course, is indicative of deity. And so what do you get when you get a piece of wood covered in gold? That's exactly what you get. Exactly. Just as I'm sure they went over the... Uh, Michael went over the tabernacle last week, or rather the uh, mercy seat and uh, the uh, uh, how all of those issues were made of wood and covered in gold, identifying them with the person of Christ specifically. Um, the structure is to be filled with God's presence. And then in verse 30, he reemphasizes the instructions for the execution of the work. And this specifically is for Moses. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. Moses is the only person that can apply to. He was the only one who was there. He saw it. He's the only one who can interpret the Lord's purpose at work. Because there is no one else on the mountain except Moses. So in verses 31 through 33, we see the veil and its supports. You shall make the veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon the sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you will bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil and the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. This veil is very, very important, gentlemen. The only people ever inside that tabernacle were the priests, busy in their service to the Lord. 
normal, average Jewish people from the tribe of Naphtali or some other tribe, the tribe of Judah, were never inside the tabernacle. These were Levites inside the tabernacle, day by day, doing the work of the priestly service, busy in their service to the Lord. But even they are not allowed. They are not able to enter the space behind the veil. Hebrews 9, 7 says, Into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. Also, what it tells us, Leviticus 16 and Exodus chapter 30. So once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the holy place and made atonement for the sins of the people. Fifteen, sixteen hundred times since it was built until the coming of Christ. Until the price was paid in full. Hebrews 7 verse 27 says, Does not who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints a high priest's men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. This beautiful veil supported on four golden pillars speaks of his flesh and the separation from humanity. Luke 13, 35 says, See, your house has left you desolate. Assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke 23, 35, or 23, 45, the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn into from the top down. You know, where nobody could get up there to do that, but the Lord In verses 34 and 35, we have the assembling of the furnishings into the tabernacle. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from it. That would be the veil in front of you, the ark of the covenant inside with the mercy seat on top of it with the two cherubs on top of that out of hammered work of gold. Then you're standing in front of the veil On your right hand would be the table of showbread with the bread baked daily on top of it. On your left hand would be the menorah on this side. Uh, The lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. All of those things set in perfect order. Notice no mention here of the altar of incense. And this is, you know, obviously this is just the beginning of the Lord's process and of the engineering details and all those issues will be sorted out in the chapters ahead. Finally, in verses 36 and 37, the screen and the support, you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, scarlet thread, identical materials with the veil. And it may not have been identical in substance, in thickness, in appearance, and obviously, but the materials are identical. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hook shall be of gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze. Now, the 
the sockets and the connectors for the, the veil for the Holy of Holies was silver and gold. This is bronze and gold on the outside. Four pillars for the veil, five for the door. Same fab- fabric to some extent. The only design difference is on the veil. There are images of cherubs on the inside, aren't there? On the screen on the outside, there are no images whatsoever. Why? Why no images on the outside? Because the Lord knows us. Because he doesn't want us to be distracted with images. Okay, and that's a very important thing. You shall make no image. And people do get distracted, don't they? They get attached to ideas and imagery. And so the Lord is trying to protect us by placing no image on the outside of the tabernacle in any place. There can only be one focal point. There's only one focal point, and that is what the Lord's seeking to provide, the focal point. You know, folks, people do not know why they're here. Christians, people who go to church two, three times a week, don't know why they're here. And that's the focal point. You see, the Lord is the focal point. He made this tent so the nation of Israel would have a specific focal point. If they would look and they would see that cloud over the entire uh, issue, over the tent by day, and they would see the fire by night, and they would recognize, you know, God is in our midst. I have a responsibility to conduct myself a certain way. Now, you have a different relationship with God than the children of Israel did. Your relationship with God is much more personal. You have, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God lives inside of you, lives in you. And I mean, if you're like me, you know, when I mess up, it is, it is the worst day of my life. It is the worst day of my life. When I misrepresent God to other people, when I conduct myself in a way that is unseemly, or even when nobody knows in the whole world, and my mind has been caught up with things that it should not be, it's, it grieves me because I know that that's a big deal in the presence of God. You know, your thoughts are real objects in the unseen world. And I, I don't want to make, I don't, it would be, you know, great rationalization. Well, it's an amazing, I'm forgiven. Jesus died for my sin. I don't have to worry about baloney. He did die for my sins. I am forgiven. But heaven forbid I should ever look upon that as a trivial thing in any way. My conduct is a significant thing. My conduct today, the way I think, the way I speak, the way I act, has eternal consequences. And not just for me. It's not just about me. It's about everybody else around me. And the lives of people that I touch and influence. You know, somebody calls me up on the phone and they're having a terrible day or they're flipping out or their family's messed up or they're sick and they need somebody to talk to them. My ability to be able to say a few words at the Lord's direction that may have an impact upon them is directly connected to my association to this focal point, my connection to the Lord who created me and my regard for his, his work in my life. I need that. I need it desperately. I need it worse than I need to breathe. Believe it or not, that's the truth. I need it worse than I need to breathe. I do enjoy breathing. And I do have a few days left. So, 
God is providing a focal point for us. God is engaged in this effort to help us understand through the ages. In some ways, everything that God does is a part of this effort to give us a focus. It's interesting how people can understand and still not understand. People have the ideas and the words and the language and the affectation, but they're lacking the substance. This is, this is the story of the church in the Western world. The United States perhaps being the worst. People who go to church on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week, unfortunately. That's the reality of where you and I are. You and I meet people on the street. They tell us that they're believers and their conduct says something very powerfully in the opposite direction. And it's up to me and you to be different than that, to be different. It's a tragic thing when I, when I talk to people who receive the Lord and I tell them you need to find a church where they're Christians. And I don't mean, and I have to be more specific, not people who just say they're Christians, people that really have a relationship with God. And you'll recognize them because you'll notice something different. They're different than other people. They really have a sincere connection with God. And that's what you're looking You want to surround yourself with people like that. And, uh, you know, I think in Iran, that's not a problem. You know, in Iran, if somebody receives the Lord, you can tell them, go be with the Christians. Because those people, they know that their life's in danger. They know that they're... They wind up in prison next week because they happen to own a New Testament. You know, here it's different. We have a common ground with the tabernacle. You are the dwelling place of God. His spirit dwells inside of you. The tabernacle is a tent and your body is a tent. Psalm 19 verse 4 says, Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of them. He set a tabernacle for the sun. God talks about the stars as a tabernacle. Coming from a nomadic people, their tent was everything. It was sanctuary, shelter, home, their belongings, their address, their identification. It was their fixed point of reference. Kind of interesting because God wants this tent to be a fixed point of reference for the nation. So that for the thousand years in the future, they can point to it. And they can say, you know, that, that's our fixed point of, of reference even though a tent by nature kind of moves around, but it is still spiritually, supernaturally, the fixed point of reference. Your fixed point of reference is the word of God, the truth of Christ and his spirit living inside of you. Isaiah 16, five says in mercy, the throne will be established. One will sit on it in the tabernacle of David, speaking of the house of David In John chapter one, verse 14 It says of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt in the Greek language is really the word tabernacle that tented among us temporarily. If you look it up in Robertson's words, pictures, it's very clear. It tells us in Hebrews chapter one, and I'm going to wrap this up right now, guys, that God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by the fathers, by, through the fathers, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And it says in verse 3 of Jesus, Hebrews 1, 3, 
who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the words of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It says that Jesus was the express image of His person. Brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. So if Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person, how did Jesus speak to men? It tells us in Matthew 13, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, He did not speak. A parable is a word picture. Jesus used words to paint a picture to help people understand the focal point. God the Father, on the other hand, made this tent as a picture, a parable of the person of Christ to foreshadow the promise of salvation that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could not purchase for the days to come. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit indicating this, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. And that is our hope. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us tonight, Lord, for your spirit. We thank you for the book of Exodus, and we pray, Lord, give us understanding as we examine, Father, your hand at work in all these things. What a miracle you have done, Lord, in the middle of a wilderness experience to set your hand upon the lives of these amazing people and raise up, Father, that witness of truth that stood for thousands of years and, Lord, revealed your presence and your purpose in the hearts of godly men and women who called upon your name. Father, work in us as we call upon your name. Let your spirit guide and direct us for your purpose. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.